Hey, welcome y'all to Mark Warnke's Exploring Human Excellence. I'm so excited to share the guest we have on today. She's such a good friend of mine. I'm so lucky to know her. Her name is Julia, and Julia uh, is on her ranch in eastern Oregon, right? Yeah. Is that safe to call it that? Okay. And she's out on her ranch on the deck, uh, and what a courageous soul because it's going to get hot as we talk. So <laughs> is I it warm? I think that's that good shade. I'm not sure the goats aren't going to show up here, but they. Uh, I hear them pitter-pattering on the get deck, but I have a hose ready. So. Okay. <laughs> So Julia is uh, a a veteran goat owner now, one year, one full year into her goat ownership. And uh, this podcast is actually, you know, it's funny. I have all these amazing people who show up in my life that have goats. And um, I often meet people through that. <laughs> she, she has hose ready to go, huh? All right. And Julia and I met. Uh, on the phone initially talking about goats and I was really struck with her and how she shared of herself and I have such a keen ear for people who have kind of that gift of wordsmithery and you have that and like some of the things that struck me about with you was like why you were getting into goats how you were talking about your dogs and your level of dedication to knowing you know dogs and their inner workings and then as well we talked a little bit about uh kind of life and philosophy and i just said i need to get to know you better and so i uh, we kind of went from okay. there so yeah so Julia, if you'd like, please, just so the, the, the audience has a little bit of back reference on, you know, who you are, kind of where you came from, part of your story, um, let, let them, you know, kind of know about you. So share of that. I think stories are always so weird because I think what we tell about ourselves is such a funny telling thing. So I always think it's kind of odd to introduce yourself, but um, I'm from the Midwest originally. My family is a uh, 100% Appalachian. I'm the first kid in my family to go to college kind of a thing. So I was uh, dedicated to get a full ride scholarship literally from fifth grade forward. So it was a really driving force to me is to make sure that I had the opportunity to explore the, you know, the entire country, the world if I could and get out and do things. So yeah, I ended up um, going away to college, um, got a fancy degree at Carnegie Mellon and um, went to University of Cincinnati, you know, did went back to school for Chinese medicine. I've just done a lot of, uh, um, I learned well. <laughs> I like to learn. So I find myself in school a lot. And I did the corporate thing and um, it just wasn't for me. I just don't fit the mold. Um, I'm probably a little mouthy, probably a little out there. So I um, just have explored different careers. I've had my own business three or four times now. And I'm, I'm finding myself really happily settling here. Um, honestly, pretty isolated out here in the mountains with my goats and my wolfhounds. So um, I've raced wolfhounds for the last 10 years. And uh, that's a pretty, it's a, a lure coursing. It's kind of like if you think about field trials for like Australian shepherds or something, you know, like border collie kind of field trials. It's the same thing only for a coursing dog. So they set up a half mile course and the dogs chase a lure, which is really just a white plastic bag because their brains are cued to movement. So they chase a white plastic bag around a irregular half mile course and it's pretty fun to get involved in. It's a great group of people. Um, I feel like if you pay attention to what kind of people get into goats or what kind of people get into wolfhounds or, you know, 
labradoodles it tends to be kind of a similar type of person and i found it i found some really like-minded people in both wolfhounds and goats and we just go out and we glamp out in the middle of the field and drink wine and have a bonfire and race dogs and it was a really good decade but um i'm kind of excited to be transitioning out of wolfhounds into um goats so that's kind of the direction i'm going now and now trying to learn everything i can about this place i live with how to maintain the land and the birds and the wildlife that's here it's just it's just that's what my that's where my heart is you know well and what i see is like an overriding you know tone about you is this i'm 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 envious of you i'm jealous of you in the way that you have this dedication to reading and learning and exploring i'm so uh mono learning medium i used to be such a big reader um i don't use the internet for learning i don't use research for learning i use conversation and people Mm -hmm. so when i want to learn more about something i call somebody that knows more than i do and i talk to him about it but there's also this this deep skepticism that uh, if I get a start, I so rely on how my brain processes information and then spits out efficient cycles to produce what I'm trying to create that if I bumble my way through it and make mistakes my way through it, I still like that process more than having somebody tell me how to do it. Um, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And I think that's but an you, important, like one of, cause I kind of master's in education and one of the interesting things about one of my favorite things about that education was understanding how you learn. And what I'm hearing from you is really similar to me is I learn better by being able to have a conversation about it. Like I learn better by being able to be a skeptic. So when you tell me something, like I know you're the goat expert, but I still don't completely believe you because that's just how my brain works. So I'm always like, I hear you. I hear you. But I'm going to let me think about that a little bit. Let me ask another person, too, and see how their opinion kind of reflects off of you. So I think that's a hard thing about book learning and why a lot of people aren't successful in school is because it's called. um, Oh, my gosh, it's called abstract learning when you believe experts. And like, I don't believe my doctor. Like, I'm a, I just don't believe anyone. I'm like, well, that seems to make sense. Let me ask someone else, too. I'm just it's a person who's more of a random learner who likes to kind of. take in information from different people and has to ask questions in order to be able to process it and bring it into their life. So let, let me ask you something then. Do you, cause I'm just having this little epiphany and it's one of the reasons I love you as a friend so much is cause you make me think in different ways. Um, and so for example, um, I get really frustrated and I wondered if you did as well when I know I'm an expert at a particular subject and somebody questions, that enough times to where we begin losing efficiency in the communication because I already know when they start to go, yeah, but I could actually already say what the yeah, but's going to be because I said that yeah, but as well. And there's part of me that just wants to say, really, did you call me to get my opinion or am I just your sounding board? Because I, I need to assume a different role so I don't get frustrated with the fact that you're just not accepting what I'm telling you is the truth of it. Right. Yet, on the receiving end, if I were that person, I'd be doing exactly what they're doing. And and I get frustrated basically by myself. Um, the other side of it is when, uh, like for example, in interpersonal relationships, I, I don't 
I think I'm difficult to deal with because even if my partner were a higher level expert at a subject, I still am not going to take arbitrary advice unless I have zero investment. When I'm non-invested, I just need to get shit done. Then yeah. I can kind of do that. But if I if there's an investment in it, I'm just not willing to shut my brain off and go, okay, I, that's just not in me. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And that has to be frustrating for the people that love me that want to lead and I really have to like make a conscientious effort to divest myself of what's going to go on to actually achieve that. Um, I really have to set agenda of like, because I'm so efficiency driven, I have to set my agenda of efficiency aside for just allowing them the process to, uh, to have me follow. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do yeah. you find any relatability to that at all? I do. I think that that was a, a, a cool thing about this class that I took was just about knowing what your style is and knowing that you tend to relate to people that learn the same way you are, but also to be an effective educator. And you're an educator in a thousand ways. Like you also have to understand that different people learn different ways. So, you know, people that learn from experts are going to come to you. It's going to be a really comfortable way because you do like that. You know, you're, you know, you shared just now that you like to be able to really share, like, this is my expertise. This is what I know. So people who take in that information from experts is really comfortable. But you can be a great ex educator as well because you see that some people need to question, right? So allowing some people to question is powerful. But I think what you touched on is, like, definitely probably my – number one hot button in the whole world is respect. So mm -hmm. it's different for you to like, for me to question something you say versus me to doubt something you say or to like play a contrarian to where I'm trying to prove you wrong. I mean, that's an asshole move versus being able to say, okay, well, let me understand. What about this? And well, what if this happens? That to me is getting clarification. And, but I have, I mean, man, I have, a, I, my button is so easy to push on respect. Like you only have to, you know, question me a few times and I just get like, I mean, I just get so mad. I mean, that's definitely the one area that my anger will go through the roof in a second is when I feel like someone's, the way they're asking questions isn't to learn, it's because they don't respect me. And that I have no tolerance for. That I've, And I, do you no. think that comes from, because I hear, I hear you talk about it in, you know, you, you, so I have a tendency to believe that there are certain cultural and social norms that are obviously a battle, a legitimate battle. Somebody who's dealing with, you know, um, whatever difference where the eye of the gatekeeper of what you're trying to manifest, there's always in some ways a human being who's a part of the ease of that process or the difficulty of that process. And in navigating another human being that makes an assumption about us, whether we have different genitalia or whether we're a different color or a different physical body type or those sorts of things, I hear you share of struggles as being seen as a woman because you've been in some of these really powerful roles and yeah. deal with other alpha personalities, often male, that I have a tendency to really discount that conversation. And the main reason is, is because I have always been somebody who it just doesn't matter what's in front of me. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And you're the same, mm -hmm. but I hear you talk about the struggle of that from a real place and almost I'm asking you, do you think you share about that place from a triggered place because of what you just spoke of? Oh, or absolutely. Because... Interesting. I, so, I, I, own that. I know that 
I have to really watch my ego and my respect button because if I'm getting the results, I mean, my last job was that managing a um, commercial construction company for a year and, um, you know, just number results, pure number results. That company was making about 40000 a year on $4 million of revenue. That's basically zero. Like, do the math. It's not 1%, anything, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's not even 1%. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, it is absolutely nothing. And right. I ran it for nine months. We were making $390,000 after me running it in nine months. And I'd already identified another $450,000 worth of savings for the next year. So within one year, I was going to take them from making $40,000 to $1 million. And as soon as I left the company, my um, the owner of the company and one of my peers says, first thing we're going to do is we're going to quit doing everything Julia had you doing. Wow. Right. So, I mean, that, there's no logic to that. Right. I mean, it's a business. They want to make money. I was going to make them a million bucks instead of 40,000. But it's just triggering for people. I don't I don't come at it. I mean, when I was younger, I used to manage by a real um, common thing that you see a lot of young women do, which is, you know, oh, I'm looking for your opinion. And what do you think? Oh, that's such a great idea. Like, oh, let's do that. Where you really are almost manipulating people into saying what you want them to say. So they think it's their idea so that they make the suggestions and then they get excited and they think you're great to work with. But as I've gotten older, I've just lost that desire to really pump up guys' egos and make them feel good about everything. And I mean, I'm a complimentary leader. I love to reward successes. But um, as I have moved out of that role, I mean, the way I used to say it is, and I've talked to a lot of women in management this way, is that men will let you manage as long as you are a daughter, a wife, or a mother. And those are the relationships that they can see you as in the workplace. It is really hard for most people to see women as a peer, as one of the buddies, as one of the guys, um, as one of the group, um, unless they fit into one of those roles. And I am super self-conscious of talking that about it because, I mean, honestly, like, I got it. I have an engineering degree. I'm a math major. I'm, I do heavy construction. Um, you know, I'm, even in education, I'm a high school math teacher. Like, all of these things. I knew what I was getting into. Like I knew that I was in kind of a boy's world, but I was raised in my grandpa's, you know, auto mechanic garage and operating equipment and being out in the woods. So to me, it's the most natural place in the whole world. And I don't want this to be true. Like I love men. I love working in these environments. Like I freaking love it, but I have run up against some pretty horrific walls and treatment. Um, and it's interesting to see women who are in a similar, you know, leadership kind of capacity. It's they won't talk about it mm. because they don't want to seem like they're complaining or whining about it. And it's just it's really uncomfortable to kind well, of. I, I, yeah, no, I, I understand. I, I that's what I guess I'm saying. That's that's the worth the worth of the conversation is, is yeah. that. I think that so could when when you so let me reflect back to you because as a as a I, I own a company that's em, employs only women. I do have a couple of men who work for me on a contract level. I enjoy working with women because there's a side of me. Uh, in fact, um, we we ha we just had uh, another ceremony on the ranch, and I'm I'm raw out of that. Now you've participated in the ceremonies mm -hmm. on our ranch where we work with PTSD and addiction recovery and that sort of thing. And these are like 
all night meditation, deeply introspective, community-based, we're all getting together for the well-being of ourselves and the well-being of humanity. So the goals are, are really lofty and beautiful. And our leader has a very hippie name and his name's Ohm. And, and uh, Ohm had this, this time where I had a really profound night this weekend. And oh. I was, I literally would say that I had probably my deepest experience ever in my human life happened. I'm four proud days of you. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was really scary and big and all those different things. But the next morning I was just a raw piece of hamburger and what a raw piece of hamburger looks like for me is the inability to share authentically without crying. Right. I, I'm really close to tears even now sharing with you on that level. And, and so from that place, I actually had like an evening of awareness of people and their awesomeness like i recognized leslie for the broad shoulders he has for his family and mm -hmm. you know and for a, a he's he's a man's man i'm a man's man and to share just with like i was weeping as i was sharing with him how proud i was, was of of him as a man that he um held the load of his family on his shoulders and chose the higher path on a daily basis, despite it would be so much easier just to give up, but he stays engaged and he stays gentle and he stays loving and he stays curious when he really shouldn't. He should, he analytically based on what he gets versus what he's putting out, he's, he's choosing a higher, like bigger than himself place on behalf of his children That's and beautiful. his relationship. And it, and it, it and, and it, and it just needed to be recognized because I know I've been in his shoes and there was, it's a, it's a quiet fight. It's a fight that nobody knows that's going on. It's this inner turmoil to be this Herculean human that can bear the weight that you didn't think you could bear on behalf of other little humans. And only for that, you know, it wasn't, no. it wasn't for him. When you talk so, about that, that really triggers that masculinity thing for me. That's just such beautiful masculinity to me. Yeah, it is. It's really, it really is. And then on the other side, there was a woman there who's, who's becoming, I'm becoming really close with us, almost like a father-daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. And I felt compelled and was shown that I should share with her these exact words, which was, your dad didn't know any better, but he was wrong. He was wrong about you. The things he told you, he was incorrect. And that incorrectness came from naivety. And you need somebody to kind of really let you know that he was wrong yeah. in his assumptions. Yeah. And even now, again, I really have a hard time not getting choked up about it. But what was really interesting about it is Ohm can really be kind of... Um, he has this lightness to him in those really heavy moments in that, as you know. And he goes man, Mark, you have to be the softest, tough guy I've ever known. <laughs> and it's so strange because I don't see myself as a tough guy. I see myself as a man who does kind of man stuff, but I've always seen myself as this pretty uh, soft, emotional, like I think it's the reason I connect more with women than I do men. And I've always felt in many circles, especially the hunting industry, as an outsider to that world, because that's this muchissimo thing that I really, I'm repulsed of the male energy that needs to be 
masculine just for the sake of being masculine. Mm-hmm. I think masculinity is a super beautiful gift and and, it, and it's more in the realm of that man of velvet and steel, that man that can yeah. be velvet. But when the steel's necessary, it's like our beauty. It's our superpower right. that we can call on, Absolutely. but it's not our shell we walk around with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that who does the talking for us. Oh, I like that. I like that. I like that idea of the steel you can draw versus that shell. It's mm. the same, you know, it's almost like an armor versus a, you know, a steel to draw. Like that's, that's just a really beautiful image. Mm. Yeah. I see it almost as like that Iron Man part. You can push a button and all of it like assimilates around yeah. you. And at any moment, you know that that's there. So you can, be gentle with the confidence to know you're a button away from being that person too. Yeah. And that's our, that's like our masculine gift. I think we just have a tendency to polarize it. Either we've become so demasculated by current society that now we're these bearded gentle guys who don't have the man piece, but it's that balance between those two that I think God really intended. But this was a really long end around. The end around is when I see the women who work for me, I realize there's a part of me that does some things really well. I, I, I'm on the phone, I'm on the computer. That's where I produce revenue for our company is doing that and being in front of the camera. In terms of the logistical bean counting of profiting, future forecasting, spreadsheets, all those things, I have to have people that help me with that because I'm really clear it's not my gift. And so I have no problem at all submitting to a woman's prowess or a man's for that matter, but I just relate better to a woman because then I can say things that don't work in a man's world very well, especially in business, which is when you said that, I my my feelings were really hurt. Yeah. If you say that to most men, it's like on their heels. What what did you what, did you just speak Chinese? You know, it's not a, it's not a language of men to use those kind of words, especially in the business realm. But with women, they have that gift. They have that gentle side that can speak about feelings, but then can still tap into that analytical side. And I relate to that side better. So for me, I mean, literally hearing you talk about that company, I would hire you. I would I would submit to you super easy and fast, not because I'm weak but because I would trust you to do better at those things than I would. And I would ask you to lead. So I don't, I, I, I still would measure results. I still would have agenda. I oh, still wow. would have input, but I, I wonder, have you discovered a man like me that you've ever interacted with or worked oh, alongside? Absolutely. I worked with, okay. I mean, I worked with tons of great men. I've worked with tons of great men bosses. I've had tons of great collaborations um, I mean, I, I'm not like, I don't think it's like a universal, like all men suck kind of thing. I mean, it's not sure. that sort of a thing. It's just that I, um, I've always really naturally, even if I go into like, I mean, I can't tell you how many places I've gone in to just be a worker bee. And it's only a short matter of time before I get promoted into, you know, a leadership role. And then I keep getting promoted. And, you know, I have quite a few natural leadership talents. I have great analytical skills. I have great problem solving and it ends up promoting me into higher positions wherever I end up. And um, it's just triggering for some folks. And it's the stress that I've carried with that has been super damaging to my health. And um, the, the struggle and the fight has been super damaging to me physically and mentally. And 
I think it's for younger women, and I hope that one day it, it's not like that. But it's uh, it's definitely a war woman position to be in because you just it's just always dynamic and always working with it. And um, yeah, I've, I've I've had great experiences, but um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't easy. discount that. Let Let me ask you this because. You, you used a word earlier that I wrote down, which is you called yourself mouthy. Yeah. Um, uh, so I feel, comp- or, or I feel curious about um, whether you feel like, um, because the way I present information to people uh, many times is affrontive, meaning um, I'm just trying to share my feelings and I always like count on the fact that they're big enough to be able to hear Mm-hmm. hear those words, handle themselves, and then come back, right? And I've been told throughout my life that, you know, I'm an ag- aggressive or that I'm, um, what's another word, intense. Mm-hmm. I've been told that. That's how people like basically say, hey, you're too much, but I'm going to use the word intense. Yeah. And I've put people off uh, a fair amount in my life, way less now that I think I've become more aware but when you used the word mouthy, it felt energetically similar. And I'm really mm-hmm. curious of your experience of that and where, like, not only kind of early in the game, how your mouthiness affected you and what it was and where it is today, because I'd be curious to know that. Um, I think there's, I've really kind of paid a lot of attention to it because I've kind of figured out where I go from being in the in-group to in the out-group, like in work situations and social situations. And um, I've spent a lot of time kind of looking at, like, regional issues as well as class issues you know and I think that there's a real like I'm a I'm working class to the bone you know and there's a real give each other shit kind of attitude in that culture as well as midwestern is very like you know we're real jabby like we really like there's a lot of you know bullshitting and jabbing each other that goes on in that kind of a culture and um it's it's a really different way of communicating and way of relating and way of building friendships than it is and say, I'm going to, I'm going to step all the way to like an upper middle class or middle class aspiring to upper middle class kind of situation. Um, and that I make people super uncomfortable that are used to not saying what they think, or as us working class people would say, they wouldn't say shit if they had a mouthful kind of people. Um, you know, they just, they just can't actually, speak authentically about anybody. And it has been a strength in my management um, style is in that I have found in that I like, I love, I love the shit out of the people that work for me. Like I love those people. Like I love them and I want them to be successful and I will fight for them and I will do everything, anything I possibly can for them. But I also call it as I see it, you know? So if I show up on a construction job and the guys have gotten nothing done, I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. You know, like, this is all you've done today. Like, come on, boys. Like, this isn't going to work. And, you know, we give each other, we razz each other, and I get out and I throw rail with them. And then we have a beer afterwards. And it's fine because they know that, like, I love them and I want them to be successful. And in that working class environment, I can get away with saying all kinds of really direct things. But I find when I get in, like, you know, kind of the ceremony space, or if I get into like upper middle class space, especially um, rich white women, which is, unfortunately has kind of become my demographic, um, I am just a little bit too um, out there. And sometimes I say my opinion, and I think people think that 
they don't know how to handle me because I'm actually like super fine with being wrong. So like if you counter and say, I don't think that's true. I think this is true. I'm like, oh, okay. But like very few people, like you're one of the few people that, you know, have the presence to actually go ahead and engage with me on that level. So I just feel like I kind of, you know, I speak just really honestly. And I, and for me, I, I don't, I never come from a place. I never speak honest. I never put my thoughts out there if I have ill intent or negativity towards somebody. And that place, like, I don't think there's any place to say that out loud unless you are privately working with somebody, you know, one-on-one, having a heartfelt conversation, trying to make something better. I only really speak my truth when I love people to death and I only want goodness and happiness and growth and positivity coming out of that. But that's a, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to take, which is the weirdest thing to me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I wasn't always so skilled at that. When you say that you only speak about conflict with other human beings in the private setting and in appropriate places, I'm somebody who can have energy spit out my side at somebody, even, even in like a grocery store clerk setting, where if I feel like somebody's dropping the ball, I can be quietly snide with them in a way that they and I understand and the other person feels uncomfortable, I still have that guy within me. And I've worked really, really hard. And what I've discovered is that it is always when anxiety speaks for me that I lose my social appropriateness. Um, People who battle anxiety to the level I do, um, I use words like feeling overtaken. And that's actually physiologically accurate. That's what happens when anxiety comes on, all your parietal and frontal lobes shut down and it's monkey brain in fight or flight down to a silly thing on whether the grocery store clerk is putting the potato chips on the bottom and then the peanut butter jar on top, right? right? That Those little anxious moments for me will cause me to do things that are out of character because I no longer have my discernment um, connected. You know, the, the monkey brain is ready for battle or running. And um, I've really, I've diminished humans. I've diminished my relationships with humans and I've done damage because that piece speaks for me. And that's been the later walk of my life, the last 10 years of my life. Once I became aware of how powerful was anxiety was in my life, it's been really, really um, a huge deal, which I need to tell you, like in our battle, probably the largest first component was awareness and understanding how to breathe through anxiety and become aware of when anxiety was present. But the latter stages have been, uh, I've had a lot of success with microcurrent um, things that's also called brain training or um, uh, it's just called a microcurrent and it's basically getting hooked up to electrodes and, and, you know, changing theta, beta and delta waves in your brain and downregulating one and uprating to another. I literally can walk out of one of those sessions only being 10 minutes long and I feel different immediately. Wow. So it's, it's been really wow. a huge, profound like tool that I've learned how to use and it's wow. affordable and, and easy and safe. Wow. Um, so I found a lot, a lot of, of positivity with that. Um, so let me, let me switch gears because I think one of the things, and, and I really wish I would have been the gift to have known you throughout your life to see your evolutionary process. I mean, we've been friends now for only a little over a year, correct? Two mm-hmm. years. Yeah. yeah. Like 
Yeah. So um, uh, I wish I could have known an earlier version of you. I know you're in my life for the reason that you are, and I'm grateful for it, but it would have been really fun to pay attention to your process. And one of the things that I wish I could have paid attention to was kind of a before and after your near-death experience. I think it's actually one of the reasons I'm so drawn to you is that you have some anointed wisdom that was given to you as a result of that experience. And I, 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 for some reason, am like a bear to honey with people who have a connection to the other side. And I've shared with some of the, in my past podcasts of, you know, my angelic dreams that I have, clairvoyant dreams that I have, people coming to me through birds that have passed. So I have a light connection to the other side or a more than average connection to the other side. Um, but you got to like kind of hang out in the other side. Mm-hmm. And so will you, will you explain to me or, and the, and the people watching this kind of what your experience was and what happened there. And then we'll kind of blend in from there. You know, I have, um, I believe the universe speaks to me. Like if I ignore it for too long, it starts kind of beating me over the head with big giant lessons. And um, I've had, you know, a few very near brushes with death, um, in the last five years, I think really trying to push me to get out of that, um, um, the path I was on of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole kind of a thing. But the, um, the real the experience that I, I know that you're speaking of is when I was in Mexico, I was in Yalapa. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's not an island, it's, it's on the coast, but there's no way to get there other than by boat. So it's 45 minutes south of Puerto Vallarta by boat. So, um, I was a, stayed in a great little open air, little um, beautiful spot, and we were playing cards one night, and I went inside to um, turn the lights on because it was getting dark, and I was wearing sandals, and I got stung on the toe by an Arizona bark scorpion. So we have those in the U.S., and no one's died in the U.S. since 1974, but about a 1,000 people a year die in Mexico um, from the Arizona bark scorpion. So... Um, they're really clear when you're there that if you have an issue, you need to get medical help immediately. And I could tell pretty fast that this was serious. Within probably five minutes, it felt like someone had a crowbar and was actually prying my leg off my body. Um, the pain was, um, I mean, it I, I mean, it felt like someone had a crowbar prying the, my, I mean, it was the most, I, I, I couldn't not make noise. Like I couldn't. Everyone's like, you got to calm down. You got to lower your heart rate. And I'm like, <laughs> like someone is prying my leg off. So um, we, um, we had uh, actually um, sunk our kayaks in the ocean the day before. And um, we only had one cell phone. So um, Jeff ran to get some help um, because it was after dark and we, it, was, it was Valentine's Day night. And we needed to get some antivenom in me because it was getting pretty serious pretty quickly. Um, and he ran down the street. He's got a great way of telling the story. And luckily the first person he asked, you know, Hey, Sinor, do you speak English? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm actually a boat captain. And he immediately knew what to do. And they came and got me and they carried me to this little, um, medic center and this little area. And this girl that must've been 19 years old, um, was the, <laughs> the nurse there. And, um, at this point, I 
I could hobble a little bit to get there. But the longer I laid there, the more like I was losing feeling in my legs and in my extremities. And I still had that pain kind of coming through, but they couldn't really get the antivenom shot in me. So they finally gave it to me intermuscular relief. Um, and they realized that my heart rate and my blood pressure were like slamming up and slamming down. It's an amazing neurotoxin. It is the most fascinating neurotoxin and what it does to your body and what it does, um, it, how it affects you. But my blood pressure was all over the place. My oxygen saturation had dropped to about um, 70. And she was worried about my, you know, that it, it wasn't, the antivenom wasn't correcting anything. So in the middle of the night, this, this guy that we happened to randomly meet on the street put us in a boat and he said he'd go get his boat. He'd call his buddy to get a four-wheeler. So by this time, by the time they put me in the wheelchair, I couldn't put myself in a wheelchair. Um, I had to be moved into the wheelchair. Um, I couldn't raise my arms anymore. I couldn't move my legs anymore. And they wheeled me down this curvy path until we got to where the four-wheeler was. They plopped me on the back of this four-wheeler, and I'm literally slumped over this guy. I can't grab him. And he's running me to the dock, and they put me in this little thing that's meant for super agile people to get in. And basically, I can't step my feet. I can't be lifted. I mean, there's it's not set up for it. So they literally shove me off the dock into this boat. I flop onto the seat, and they wrap <laughs> me up with that. That um, they give me a blanket, and someone gives me a sweatshirt. But at this point, like they have to set me back up. I can't move anything. And at this point, my breathing is like. Like I can kind of get a little bit of breathing, but one of the things that the, um, the scorpion sting does is it starts to make you salivate. So it starts to shut off. It makes your throat swell. It makes you salivate so you can't swallow or get air up and down your throat. So <clears throat> at this point, it was getting kind of scary. And we had a 45-minute boat ride to um, Puerto Vallarta. And um, they supposedly called an ambulance for me to be waiting for me there. And... Um, but it was whale migration season. So we're on a boat with no lights going through. There's a guy with a rope on the front of the boat with a headlight trying to make sure we don't hit whales. And I, I get about, I don't, I, I can't really tell you. It's about probably about not very far into the trip, maybe 10 or 15 minutes into the trip. And Jeff's um, wife died of cancer and he never said goodbye to her. And it was one of the most traumatic things that he'd ever that he holds in his heart is not really, he kept saying, no, no, you're going to be fine. You're not going to die. You're going to be fine. And he really holds heavy in his heart how he didn't say goodbye to her and let her go. So at this point, I can barely talk because my tongue is paralyzed and I can't breathe. I'm sipping air. I'm kind of going, I mean, I was at 70% oxygen saturation 30 minutes ago. <laughs> So my oxygen is just, I have no air. I don't feel like, and I'm, I can't any, I mean, I, the last thing I was able to say to him is you have to say goodbye to me. You did? That's yeah. what you said? I was like, oh. you have to say goodbye to me and you have to let me go. Wow. You have to tell me you love me and say goodbye. And I mean, I said it with a really thick thumps tongue. So it probably didn't sound nearly that profound. I think it was more like, oh, I'm hang on, I'm hang on. <laughs> my face is entirely paralyzed. But he was like, no, 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 you're going to be fine. And I was like, no, I won't let you. I won't let you do it again. I won't let you. You have to say goodbye. Mm. And um, the 
it was dark, but there was still a little light on the horizon. And I, my so, back was. So did he? He did, yeah. Was it beautiful for you? Were you able to receive? I was so calm. I was okay. I was dying. I was okay. I had no panic. I had no fear. I was entirely calm. There was no more air. I couldn't. He was ready to like puncture my throat. He was telling me everything to like make sure that he could get air into my lungs. But like I had no more. There was no more air. There was there was nothing. It was closed off. And I, I could look out because my back was to the um, sunset. So, I mean, it was past well past dark. But when you're out in the ocean like that, like there's still just the teensiest bit of light that's kind of hanging out there on the horizon. And I could just see that little light. And I knew that this was I was done. And I I knew I was done. And I had just sold my business. So I, you know, finally had realized, you know, I had um, enough money to retire on. Um, I owned my home. I had every, I had debt free. I was finally in a place to where I was no longer going to have to be that warrior and really fight. And um, I always think it's interesting because people say that you don't think about money on your deathbed. But when I was sitting there looking at that horizon, I was heartbroken that I didn't have a will and I wasn't going to be able to help the people that I truly loved in the world because all that money was going to go to my mom. And I mean, that's fine, but like that isn't who I would choose to really help. And I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken that I wasn't, and it was about money, which is so funny because people always go, oh, you don't think about money. And I'm like, I was heartbroken that I wasn't going to be able to help the people that had made the biggest difference in my life. Super interesting. Heartbroken. And I was as, I, I, there was no way I still had 30 minutes and there was no, I was laying down. I was blacking out. Like I was, and Jeff fought the whole time, kept talking to me. I, we were probably 20 minutes to the dock and I remember giving up. I remember I was done and I was okay. I wasn't scared. Like there was no, I, I would think you would be panicked when you were about to die. I had no, I wasn't scared at all. Super interesting. And he, he started lying to me and he started telling me that he could see the dock and he could see the ambulance lights and they were waiting for me. We were 25 minutes from there. There was no, there was no amp, there was no lights, but he started telling me that he could see the city and that I just needed to hold on a little bit longer. And I was, there was no, I couldn't hold myself. I mean, I was done. I was completely, I was fading. I mean, I was letting go. I was, he was, I heard him, but I, my heart was more on, I was so peaceful. It was just the most beautiful, peaceful, calmest place. And I, I felt completely okay with dying. I had no anxiety about it, no fear. It was just the most peaceful thing. Hmm. So amazing. So then, and then you passed? I blacked out for a while. They woke me, they, you know, they got me to the dock and there was water and jumbling and they lifted me onto the dock and it was just amazing, by the way, because I'm not a small person. And this teeny little Mexican guy and Jeff, like, making this carriage thing and, like, hoisting me up, like, six feet out of the boat onto this dock. And 
I kind of came back to at that point because they were moving me and they put me in an ambulance and the ambulance driver took one look at me and I don't know that you could drive that fast on cobblestones and they threw me in a um I mean, I couldn't move anything. Like, I can't move my body. I can't. I am 100 so they didn't. they didn't have a shot for you in the ambulance? There was no ambulance. They lied. Jeff lied the whole time. Oh, wow. Lied the so whole just... time. If he hadn't lied, I don't know that I would have made it. He lied the whole time, telling me that there was an ambulance. Interesting. So what, I don't understand what you rode in then. There was a taxi cab at the end of the, a couple had called a taxi. And they were, they were, it was their taxi, but the, everyone saw me and I just, they just threw me in the taxi. And then the taxi driver freaked out, drove me to the hospital, got to the hospital. It's kind of weird because it's not the United States. So they won't even take me back to the emergency room until my credit card goes through. Hmm, so Jeff luckily had grabbed my credit card um, and they ran my credit card through and then they took me back to the ICU and I, um, I had two doctors and two nurses. My, your veins collapsed completely. So I have good veins, like you can poke me anytime, but there was no, no one could get a needle in me. So I had, there was a person on each foot and each arm and each wrist, like poking me, trying to get needles in me. And I think I got like three shots of the antivenom. Um, and I finally talked them into giving me something for the pain because the, as paralyzed as I was, it still felt like there was a crowbar taking my leg off. Um, wow. So they gave me a, a pretty heavy sedative. And when I woke up complaining and everybody in the emergency room, ICU room, like cheered, they're like, yay, she's miserable. It's awesome. So, um, and with antivenom, like as soon as it, there's no lasting, I mean, as soon as the antivenom works, like you're fine. Hmm. Interesting. So there's no so like healing, recovery, anything. As soon as it processes, I'm completely fine. Wow, trippy. So that happened how many hours after the original sting? Four hours. Wow, holy shit. That's crazy. It took them about two and a half hours to get antivenom in me, and then they knocked me out for about, probably about 30 minutes, and then I came back after so do 30 you, minutes. So do you believe then, do you feel sure that you noticed the difference between that you passed or that you just fully processed the... I, I fully processed dying. Okay. That's what I was, I was wondering. There Interesting. Was, I was on that slide. Like I was, I was all the way, there was no oxygen. Like by the time they gave me oxygen, like I had no, there's, I was not bringing in oxygen. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, I feel a miracle. I didn't have brain damage because there was just no air so then the question would be then the follow-up so how 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 has that affected you how has that affected you now in your life where you know that you've already had this once really peaceful event with the dying process how did how, how did what have, what's the what's the long tail of that i mean i think the biggest impact for me is that um Life is so short. I mean, it is, you don't know. I was healthy and happy and active. I got bit by a random bug, you know? And I think that that appreciation, like when people talk about, you know, like their struggles at work or their struggles with everything, like I don't relate to it. I don't, I don't see anymore 
the point in what in the world you could possibly want materialistically that is more important than your happiness and your peace. Like, I can't imagine what it would be that is more important than your happiness and peace. And I, and we are, and, and we, and I feel like most people live for those things. And I, it's just really hard to look at and look at in other people. I just don't understand. I'm like, what, how could that possibly be more important than your peace of mind and your joy and your willingness to love more and give more kindness to the world. Like I have no idea what you could possibly be doing other than that. So, okay. So I can understand that. So I get that. And at the same time, do you still find yourself slip into those moments where you do lose your peace and happiness and kindness? Do you still detach from that at moments? At moments, and I find that a, a new response for me has been depression when I get into those places, um, because it it feels there's just a real disconnect now for me, um, because there is really nothing there's nothing more important than loving people more and giving more kindness into the world. There is just nothing, and I'm such a simple person. Like you're like me. Like I could live in a camper in the woods and just enjoy myself that is your goat by the way <laughs> i'm just giving him back to you he is gorgeous be a great packer you can just have this <laughs> the socially inappropriate biff yes um but yeah, I, I've had a few, um, I've had a, probably about four, three or four really kind of vicious attacks on this new world where people are just spitting so much vitriol and hatred and negativity towards each other. And it, it crushes me in a way that a 53 year old woman who's run construction companies and businesses should not be so um, affected. And it's, um, it, it hurts me. It hurts me in a totally different way. There's a part of my soul that opened up from that, that has crushed my resiliency to abuse. And that is a weird thing to realize how resilient I was to abuse in the first time point. And now how, how I don't have any resiliency to harshness and abuse. Like it's like this little soft hippie heart got opened up. And I just don't know how to go back to the normal amount of gruffness and harshness that we give each other on a daily basis. Like it just seems there's no, there, there's no place in my brain that can process it. So that's super interesting because what you're describing right now is to me this really deep connectedness with that part of your masculine side that had that capability to have have that steel side that can yeah. have somebody else's opinion or you know choices bounce off of you yeah and you know like ohm says he said it again in this ceremony he said the gift the gift of the feminine energy is um empathy empathy yeah. and the ability to relate to other people so the bringing in the the, the struggle of the feminine energy is the lack of boundaries right 
Yeah. And and the lack of boundaries to not allow those things in when they don't serve you. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting to see you polarizing right now that I think so much of your walk was to find that masculine energy within you to be in that place and now you've like celebrated your feminine side but it's almost like to do that you've you've lost the connection Mm -hmm. to the masculine side so you have like this interesting polarity now I, i will tell you in my observations of my walk in my when i've tried to make profound shifts a person once told me that really helped me to understand the process of that is that if we're striving for balance, what we often have to do is to polarize to find balance. Mm -hmm. So it's if we're over here and we wanna make a difference and have that because that's not serving us, usually what we have to do is peg the needle on this side to then be able to recenter. And and I think that's how it feels for me that it's possible for you right now. When When you share of it as not being able to, I, I, I feel compelled to say, I wonder if it's not being able to right now, not, not, not being able to. It's interesting because I'm really also, I mean, I hear you. I definitely hear you. And I, and I know that I think that that's really insightful about the boundaries because I'm actually pretty good at boundaries. So that's something I need to really, really meditate on and bring into my life. I really love that. Um, but the thing that I'm questioning for myself right now is do I want to be resilient to harsh treatment? Mm-hmm. Or do I want to have boundaries that say that's not going to happen in my life? Like, mm-hmm. you're not, that's not happening. Um, well, I, I, I understand, but I don't think it's realistic to think that you have the ability to control other humans and their lack of vibration. I think that I think that you have elevated, at least in my short time with you, your vibration. And this is one of the things that I discovered most recently in this most recent ceremony, is that there's an energetic connectedness to all things. And what happens is, as we begin to harmonize and vibrate at a higher level, there's there's a degradation of the previous level that has to happen. And there's an enormity of energy that has to spit out sideways to allow for that next building block. It's almost like um, uh, another human experience of what it'd be like a breakdown before breakthrough. But that connotates that we have to like t- take a step backwards. What I'm saying is, is that as we elevate our vibration, it's almost like we have to energetically move and cast away the energy that is held in that previous place that we were. It almost has to disseminate to then create the building blocks for the next level. And hmm. I think that to say that when you're, and, and, and so I'll, I'll say like, a really interesting awareness of that is that now for three days, I have been unable to drink coffee. It's not that I want to healthily make a shift. In fact, I believe intellectually that the positives for me in my past mm-hmm. health-wise have been outweighed to the positive realm for coffee. Coffee is good for me. For some reason right now, coffee isn't good for me anymore. And I believe it's because I've taken another step of vibration and the previous harmony that I had with coffee no longer exists. 
So I've been passionately consuming coffee since I was 16 years old. So that's almost 40 years of drinking a beverage as a ritual every morning that gives to me. Helps me poop, helps me think more clearly. Ugh. Did I just lose you? So you guys, if you're watching this, I will edit and pull us back in. Hmm. Hey Siri, text Julia. What do you want to say? I think you just either lost connection or power. Question mark. there yep perfect okay you're awesome okay we're recording great all right so we kind of started again so i'll just try to start where i left off so no, i i heard what i really heard what you were saying about the and I, it really made me think i think you're actually spot on i think that because masculinity is one of the topics that i'm really been meditating on and it's been coming up for me a lot and looking at and i think that I used to have what I would call kind of a toxic masculinity in my personality, which was a real like aggressive, holding my own kind of fighting kind of a place. And I think I've kind of rejected that kind of aggression from a masculinity standpoint. And I think you're spot on like, as I've been really looking and defining what I think masculinity is to me, I think it's that quiet pillar of strength that has the resources to really support and lead. And that is a masculinity that I haven't developed. Um, I think I mimic the masculinity that I saw growing up, which was a lot of, you know, really angry, loud masculinity. So I do think you're right. I think you're right. I think it's letting go of that old and, and really working that new level of masculinity into my life. Okay. Well, so just, just so the viewers know, because they're just going to experience what the conversation dropped off, um, we, Julia is sitting in the sun and her phone got hot and had to switch to Wi-Fi, so we're just kind of picking up the conversation. We're going to deal with it for a little bit. Um, but, you know, it was really uh, super interesting to see your process of that. But uh, I think it's so important to acknowledge the fact that even though you have embodied your connection to yourself that feels critical to being the best you on behalf of Mark, I'm not hearing you as well. I don't know if that's my computer or if that's your microphone, but I'm not hearing you as well right now. Hearing you as well. Yeah, now I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, I noticed that your signal dropped off a little bit. I can monitor it on my end. I'll put oh. the mic a little bit closer. It, it, it should be fine. It audio adjusts. So, are you, you can hear lovely. me? Okay. Okay. Yeah, great. So, uh, you know, as far as as far as 
as far as the space that you're in in the world, no matter how remote you get, unfortunately, we are all going to rub against people who are making less than best decisions on behalf of humanity because all of us are in different realms of our walk. Now, the thing that has really created some interesting space for me. <laughs> the thing that has been really interesting to me to pay attention to in that is that I have changed as I become more kind and thoughtful and grateful to understand that the, the sense I make of people doing things that I deem as, as you know, to use a word, low vibration or, or whatever, just decisions that miss the mark on behalf of humanity and the goodness of humanity and what we know to be true about our mission here on earth, which is to be kind, loving, and patient and, and grateful. Um, when, when I fall short, when they fall short, when I notice that, I have learned now to almost... Uh, be more open to that experience because it almost always comes from perspective. From their perspective, they're actually making high vibration choices from where they are in life, both in their, in their evolution and in the story that they tell themselves about the same situation we're both looking at from two different reference points. And, and one of the best examples of that that I've noticed because I've seen some divorces going on around me right now, and I notice that really high quality human beings can look at the same situation and tell the story of it. And man, you would think that each person was an ax murderer if you listened to the <laughs> other one tell about it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. And it's the power of perspective. Mm -hmm. The power of perspective allows two different people to look at the same situation from such different places that when people often, I'm deeming that they're being low vibration, they're probably actually thinking they're doing best for them and their own, meaning they're either being protective of their spouse, their well-being, their children, their possessions. That means something to them completely different than the way I'm seeing it. And so as a result, I judge that and um, it, it just doesn't let me see it from their perspective. So now I lose discernment. I lose the ability to judge that action with cleanliness because it's muddled with my story and my vibration, right? I, I listened to a, I, I listened to a book, um, well, actually a woman speak about her book. And one of the things that she spoke about on that exact topic was about how it's all anthropological and that like we're one tribe that is now divided into different tribes and kind of the same way that you wouldn't go somewhere and judge a tribe and their behaviors you would assume like, oh, wow, they've had really different experiences and different things that have kind of gotten them there. She has this little thing where she says, gosh, they're not from my tribe. You know, like I didn't, I, they must have had completely different experiences to come to this position in the world. And she looks at it more as like an anthropology frame of mind than a social, you know, like a connection, like human to human kind of frame of mind where she looks at it as like, oh, that's their tribe. Their tribe does that. Interesting. Yeah. Super interesting. Uh, yeah, because 
you know, that statement that the, the fastest way to evolution or evolvement or enlightenment is a better word is through spiritual community, right? Yeah. And so it's also the fastest way to just assimilate whatever you're immersed in. So mm-hmm. if you're immersed in a culture that holds negativity, criticism, judgment, and that and that culture could be just your family of origin with one right. leader that holds that energy and then that bleeds right. through the rest. Yeah. That that we and I, and I and I often say this that things on the negative side of vibration and positive side of vibration, their blessing and their curse is that they're um, contagious. When you have somebody who spews venom all the time, you become venomous when you're around it. It's contagious. Mm -hmm. And when you have somebody who spews kindness, love, and gratitude, you can't help to become more kind, grateful, and loving, which is so cool to set the tone of my space, right? Right. Their tribe, as you're saying it. So it's really beautiful. I feel less judgy. It's helped me feel less judgy with kind of saying like, oh, that's their tribe. I don't know their experiences. I don't know what got them there. It's not my tribe, so I don't need to take it on. I don't need to analyze it or believe it in this space because I'm not doing an anthropology study on this particular tribe right now. It's just a tribe that I don't fully understand. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That's your so, note, by the way. <laughs> so I feel really curious to go down uh, the trail with you, Julia, with what I believe is one of the most unsung stories that there are a lot of people who could really benefit to hear your experience that you shared with me the other day of kind of not only the attack that that really horrible human being laid on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're, if you're willing to share that story, yeah. because I found that, I found that so telling and so learning. And, and I just want to take a second before you tell it that I find you as one of these super beautiful, courageous, leaning in human beings so much so i i almost fill with tears in sharing it with you your courage is inspirational your perspective is so beautiful and i just so cherish you and the telling of the story the other day i was so struck with the fact that i literally could have ripped that man limb to limb on your behalf and 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 i wouldn't have felt bad about it at all yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just really want you to know that, yeah, it really struck me. Um, and so I wonder if you could share it because I think there's some real culturally important subjects in that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that would be a nice end to this particular, you know, discussion. And I think we have lots more discussions in our future, but I think that that's one that's really important. You're, you're telling of that story and then the story around that story is really important for people to hear on Mm -hmm. both ends of it. People that will relate to it directly and people who witness and participate in that part of our culture. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. Can you share that with us? Yeah. The story you're referring to is um, I was, I picked up my niece, my 12 year old niece from the airport and I was going to take her to get some tacos over at Madre's in Boise Um, And I had run into construction. I made a wrong turn. I did do the wrong thing, but I didn't put anyone at danger. I didn't do anything, you know, heinous, but I felt bad. I kind of gave it like, Ooh, sorry, that was my bad. And I got out of the way so that I wouldn't become a bigger problem. When I went to park to get something to eat, 
this man pulled up in a minivan and I thought he was going to yell at me because, you know, when you parallel park, you kind of go out into the other lane. So he slowed down. So I thought he was going to yell at me because I, you know, curved into his lane to get into my spot. And he started in on me. I'm like, you know, do you know how stupid you are and people who are ignorant making stupid decisions like that or what's wrong with our society today and you're such a stupid cunt and why do you do? And I was like, whoa, whoa, like, I'm sorry. I made a wrong turn. Like, my bad, buddy. And he was like, don't you understand? To do things in construction is like one of the most dangerous things. I was like, buddy, I worked in construction 10 years. I understand. I made a mistake. And he kind of kept at it. And I, I realized. And this is him yelling at you window to window? Or window had he gotten window. Okay. And then I had decided, like, this guy wasn't, I just needed to remove myself from the situation. Like, there was no de-escalating this. So when I went to open the door, he saw me and he said, oh, this makes sense. You're just a fat bitch. He's like, do you want me just to go and get you a treadmill? Because that's what you need. And you need a treadmill before you need a brain. And you need both of them. I've got a treadmill. I'll bring it for you. It's lazy, fat cunts like you that fucking are ruined. I mean, I'm just like the vitriol. I've got a 12-year-old beautiful little girl next to me. And this man is like screaming at me. And I'm a fighter. I am not a fighter. So everything in my heart wanted to just grab open his car door grab him out and kick him in the groin even if it meant i was going to get hurt the only reason he felt like he could do that is because he felt like i couldn't fight back and i was vulnerable and he was picking on me because he thought i was vulnerable and i'm like little do you know buddy i have absolutely no fear i almost died on a boat in mexico i absolutely don't care what happens to me but i will not let you treat me like this but i didn't say anything i smiled i said i'm sorry you know I'm sorry, buddy. I got to go. And he kept yelling these things about how fat I was and how disgusting I was and how sick it made him to look at me and how horrid I was and just how stupid and how ignorant and like what a dumb entitled cunt I was. And I was like, oh, my God. So we finally I just keep walking. I get across the street and you know how teenagers can be kind of slow getting stuff together. So I'm kind of waiting for her, which gave the guy time to turn his car around and come back. So as I'm sitting on the sidewalk in front of this restaurant with all of these, you know how Boise is. I feel like everyone's a triathlete. They're all young and healthy and vigorous and gorgeous. And here I am standing on the corner. I know my capacities. I know who I am. I know what I can do. But to look at me, you might not have that same opinion. And here I am standing in front of this community peer group of sorts but this man comes back by and stops and basically keeps yelling those same things to me. I mean, this incident probably lasted 10 to 15 minutes. Not a single person came to my defense. Not a single person sheltered me, protected me. And I just kind of, you know, kept a high, you know, because I think the bullies want to think they're getting to you. So I just tried to act like, like, I don't care, like whatever. But by the time I sat down in that restaurant, I was shaking like a leaf. I probably cried four or five times a day, every day for probably two weeks. I'll probably cry talking to you about it. And it's not because I think that he's right or I think that like his opinion is valid or that he's got anything together. It was just that level of like hate and attack coming at me and knowing that society is so fat phobic and it just... And knowing that I felt like everyone in that restaurant must have agreed with them. Like, why didn't anyone that was sitting on that patio come and help me? Anyone say anything? 
But the only thing that my logical brain can say is because they agreed with him, you know, and it just felt like so deeply horrifying and painful. And I still can't quite get it. I mean, honestly, I've, it's still, it's still with me, you know, and it's with me because I know that's how people see me. And well, it's just there. It's just there. well, and I think I think it's important to share as well so that people have a perspective that I do that you also in your past have been thin and athletic and saw yourself as beautiful and those sorts of things. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, w- w- I'm a three sport college athlete. I hike five miles a day every day. Like I'm I row on the lake behind me like. I'm a very active, healthy person, but my physical body doesn't reflect. It just doesn't reflect. Hormones, women's bodies are complicated, and medicine doesn't really give a shit about them. Um, it is a complicated process that we don't really understand. Well, and but, but my point with that is, is that you've come from a place that felt like yeah. Yeah. Uh, adored by our modern culture that celebrates thinness and beauty and those sorts of things. And I know what also... it's like to be a beautiful person. I know how beautiful people are treated. I know the respect that they're given just based on their outward appearance. I know how gentle culture and how appreciative culture is to beautiful people. I know what that feels like. And so with your current perspective, as, as you're experiencing things like that and you express that that isn't the only time, I think the the interesting part is is that, and I've often said this, and and again, you're such a gift to the world and a gift to me because when when people have a sensitivity, it doesn't allow for open communication because people have to uh, step around the sensitivity yeah. itself, yeah. right? Out of respect, you know, yeah. out of respect. I, it's right. a good thing to do. I'm not saying it's shallow, yeah. but when you can openly share about things that are yeah. sensitive, then it gives this chance to truly explore it in a way yeah. that can, can pull back from that sensitivity and then have both mutual learning and honesty that's really beautiful and rare. So that's super rare. Um, and I just acknowledge you in that. So I've often said that that is a culture that we should not be trying to acknowledge. If we're going to give a group a consideration, it needs to be the unattractive and the heavy. The unattractive and the heavy are the most prejudiced against group mm-hmm. in America. By mm-hmm. so far, it's silly. Yeah. The battle that that demographic has to lean into life and to get life's little fast lane moments that help them yeah. It's just not available to that group more than any other single group. And there's nobody fighting for that group, really. Yeah, it's true. It's really an amazing, sad thing. Yeah. I mean, medical care. Like, I can't tell you how many times I come into the doctor and I tell them, you know, something's going on. And they're like, oh, let's run some blood work. And we do the follow-up. And they go, oh, wow, your blood work's really good. And I'm like, yeah okay, well, you're fine. I'm like, no, I'm not fine. The same issue I came in with, I still have. You had just jumped to the conclusion that the reason I was sick was because I was fat. And it's, I mean, it's taken me years to find a doctor that will actually help me and support me. Mm. It's amazing. 
and you found one? I'm lazy. Yeah, they assume I'm lazy. They assume that I don't exercise. They assume that I don't eat well. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I eat really well. Like, I, it's just a lot of assumptions that people make about me mm-hmm. that then cause them to, just how they interact with me is completely different. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm curious. I heard somebody share one time that was also courageous like you. It was a lady that I'd love you to meet sometime. I wish I was still connected with her. Her name's Betsy. Betsy was a really important person in my life when I was attending adult children of alcoholic meetings, which was a really beautiful meeting, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, I did I did recovery meetings, AA, NA, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, CODA, CODA meetings, um, which helped me, I, I often say that like AA and NA, adult, I, I mean, again, I assume people know what these things are, so I should yeah. use the words, adult, uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, mm-hmm. that, you know, I got sober 30 years ago, but I still went to those meetings for years, and I did a meeting every night for seven years to just try to figure out how to feel normal again, or, or feel like I was going to be able to successfully navigate my own well-being and my ingrainment into the world with a sober mind. And then after that, it was always things like Al-Anon, uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics, because those things helped me to quit using drugs and alcohol to to exist. But uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics helped me to exist within that space in serenity. So it taught me how to leave live life. I had to learn how to quit first, then I needed to learn to life without that Um, because there's a saying in it that alcoholism is actually a disease that's only treated with alcohol and that Mm. the problem is is when you pull away that physical treatment of that different gene code and people don't realize this that addictive we have an extra chromosome that connects to mind-altering substances and when you're no longer treating that genetic propensity towards addiction with a mind-altering substance, you then have to replace it with something else because there's this dangling end that's looking for something to connect to. Mm -hmm. And usually it's another form of addiction. For me, it was hunting. I became a hunting addict and I became a seeking serenity addict. I never found serenity. It was the seeking of serenity that I became addicted to. The process of trying to find a base state of okay, I'm okay. And so, um, but Betsy shared with me and she was, she was a heavier lady and Betsy shared with me that when she got really soft and really tender and really honest in a place, she said, the hardest thing for me in dealing within humanity is that I like physical touch and nobody will touch me. And I, and I, that always stuck with me. That always stuck with me. I'm physically a very touchy person, even just in, in, in just greeting somebody. So I'll often put my hand on somebody's shoulder or pat somebody on the back. I'm that person that does that. I think it's uncomfortable for some people sometimes because that's uncommon, but I always actually make an extra effort because Betsy shared that with me 25 years ago to make sure that I touch people that, that carry weight because I don't think it happens enough for them. Um, do you feel that at all in your life, especially now that you're living alone? Um, I, I sympathize with that quite a bit. Um, I can see 
you know, because I'm living alone, because I'm out here by myself, like sometimes it, it is amazing. Like hugs are just the most amazing things in the whole world. Um, I what are the most amazing thing? I hugs are amazing. It. I mean, just hugs, a really great yeah. hug is amazing. Um, I tend to draw people in. I don't know what it is about me, but I do draw people in to me physically. So it's not something that I have a hard time with. Mm. Um, but I can understand it. I can definitely mm. see it as I know that when I had um, when I did Chinese medicine, I did AMA, which is a massage based Chinese medicine with acupressure points. And you could tell when I would work on heavier people like I think they really appreciated that form of Chinese medicine because there was so much touching. Um, mm. I just, I, I, you could tell, you could tell people that hadn't been touched and just how hungry their body was for that touch. That's um, such so a, a super interesting noticing. Yeah. To be able to give to people. Yeah. Well, I mean, that... it's an energetic work. It's your job to kind of feel what they're feeling. So mm. yeah. Like, so it was definitely a presence that they really needed me to touch their body and places that they might not even let a partner touch them. Um, you know, mm. people are always sensitive with, you know, their fat rolls or their flabby arms or whatever. And like, that's part of my treatment is to work through those pieces. And um, you could just tell, you could just feel how much holding there is of energy in those parts of their body. And it was just amazing to be able to like let energy flow back through their body again while you were working and just feel them come back alive and feel that mm. chi kind of going through their body and in a different way. It was, it was really a beautiful gift to be able to give people. I mean, beautiful. Boy, I bet. I yeah. bet. So, what a super yeah. cool paying attention. I, yeah. uh, uh, that's really interesting you say that because towards the end of my, my marriage, I felt so physically starved for like snuggle. Right. So I was like the, I, in relationship, I've always kind of been more on the feminine side of physical touch and the expression mm -hmm. of love. Like I, I tell people I love them a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, um, I often uh, say that I can't help it. I really have like a, I can't help but to do that and to recognize like you look beautiful, hugs and appreciation and stuff. That's very natural for me. But I've found myself that I've put myself in a position where I think I don't get that in that same level. And, you know, you kind of always want what you give too. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of my marriage, when there was really a lacking of physical touch and, and closeness and snuggling, one of my respites was massage. I, yeah. I, I loved being touched and, yeah. and, and it, I, it was an older woman who was my massage therapist for a long time. And I just really enjoyed just being touched by a woman and, in, mm -hmm. and it wasn't, not, it, there was it not a sexual, sexual essence at contact. all. Yeah. Yeah. It was just physical contact. So it's more mm -hmm. of a primal thing than that. It's just that real. And it's all, it's just so, it is amazing how much your energy does get stuck in your body when you're not being touched and like how much you hold and how much pain comes from that and how much pain comes from that holding and I think that um, what I found with people with fibromyalgia and heavy people that a lot of that pain is honestly from not being touched and from that energy being stuck in their body and when you start really getting regular massages and you really encourage that movement that a lot I mean I've had a lot of success with fibromyalgia people um, through Chinese medicine and massage so let me ask you one other thing, and then we're going to 
clo close up here in a second. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you because you've come to, have you come to one or two dances here at the ranch? Only one dance. Okay. So I'm curious to ask you in the same way that you pay attention to your body and the energy that it holds, did you find that you were able to move energy and take on positive and well, just move energy? Were you, I'm trying to see why I like to dance so much. I, I acknowledge that vibration, music, celebration, community are all forms of medicine, right? They're medicine for our yeah. inner authentic self. And the dances give to me so much in such a profound way that I'm curious, and I know it's going to give to people in different ways, but I'm curious to, to ask you, do you find that there's a part of that that is a moving of energy for you? Uh, are, are they as fulfilling for you? And if they are, what, why? What piece of it is is giving to you? For me, when I'm in that scenario, also probably because I'm a heavy person as well, um, I, I struggle always in the beginning of being both in my head and in my body. So mm. there's a lot of observing of what other people may be thinking or how do I look to everybody else in the room. So there's a lot of that, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty stubborn, so I'll push past that. I don't think everybody does push past that, but I'm willing to just, you know, give the world the finger and kind of push past that mental barrier. And I find that once I'm able to get out of there and I'm able to actually let go of the thinking and just be purely in the physical, that that is where the, the most um, nurturing comes for me from dance. I feel very, I don't like the word healing, so you'll see me kind of avoid using the word healing, but I find very, a lot of nurturing and love for myself and for the community getting out of my head and being purely physical mm. which is probably the same thing as sex right like if you get out of your head and you're purely physical it's just amazing and if you're right. in your head it's pretty lame you know so i think mm. that same thing happens for me with dance as you're like oh it's purely physical at this point i can just absolutely be passionate and myself without a brain because we give our brain way too much credit for actually <laughs> who we are like we are mm. not our brains like we are not what we think and it's just a a beautiful place to just remember that for just that evening. And I think that's what I get the most out of those dances. We are Super not our brains. Super interesting. Well, I love your perspective. Yeah. For me, I don't, I don't know if I can say if I have a really clear handle why that's so giving for me. I think that the orchestration of it feels really giving to know that my effort and energy has put 15 or 20 people in the room that are having a blast that feels really super neat for me to be able to just acknowledge that the time money and energy to make that possible was and to see so many benefit from it in such a beautiful way there's that little piece of me it doesn't uh, it doesn't have an elevation piece it has a, no, a, a, a yeah it's, it's yeah so it's really fun for me to see all the bobbing heads in the room and it's really super beautiful you know um, what i love it, about that when you describe that is i mm. love how beautiful everyone is mm. because it's mm -hmm. so outside of our normal social settings where we're you know giving those you know prejudging people and looking at them and making decisions like that space that you've created is so outside of that realm all i see in that room is how beautiful everyone in that room is. 
mm. even when they're struggling, you know, mm-hmm. even when they're not, you can tell they're not in a good space or whatever. Like it's still so beautiful. You have just mm. really created a space for people to just, it's just beautiful, Mark. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I agree. It's really super beautiful to see people just be able to channel into whoever they are in this like self-acceptance mode and the community acceptance mode. There's mm-hmm. there's so few settings that allow for people just to be really super authentically whoever they are and have yeah. the whole group uniformly yeah. be able to really embody the beauty of whatever shows up. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's just yeah. so lovely. That's so mm. lovely. Yeah, and and Ohm's teachings of the overriding of Aloha, and for us to have kind of that moniker of the Ho'oponopono of you know create whatever we do, whatever action we take, what the resultant action is right, and then we get the opportunity to do more right. That baseline of a of a premise, the breath of spirit, the breath of God flowing through us. Um, in in the celebration of one another with whatever you come with. It's this beautiful baseline that we can all stand on that is like this super beautiful space that allows for us to thrive. It becomes medicine itself as like a platform. So, yeah. So it's yeah, cool. I think thanks, thanks to that and that other work, like I find, I find it really uncomfortable when I catch myself judging or speaking negatively of people. Like I find it really like, it doesn't fit anymore. I mean, sometimes the words still come out of my mouth because of habit and patterns in the past, but it doesn't fit anymore. It's just, it's really uncomfortable. So that's, that's just a great, gosh, how beautiful. If I keep even moving further in that direction to where I don't even have those moments of the judging mm. and negativity. Like that's the goal, right? Is to really right. be able to see that beauty and love because more love and there's more love can solve everything. Mm, yeah well it'll save the world there's no question so julia i am so grateful to you thank you so fun we've been talking about getting together at this capacity i so look forward to continue to explore different things and as the audience gets to know you better and i get more steam underneath me to do more of these you know i feel like i've dropped the ball a little bit in in the frequency and and i have a couple scheduled wait till you get to hear canon canon's story is really beautiful he's coming on soon and and uh you know ewan will have him back on and i continue to seek out really beautiful people like yourself so i feel like um, you have such interesting people i love to be the follow-up sounding board to talk about these people with you too i love i love exchanging ideas with you it's amazing Mm, and i I feel the same that's why you're here so yeah uh, super appreciate you so um to the listeners uh thank you so much for your time and energy i apologize about a few of the connect conductivity you know issues that we had i'll try to edit that smoothly i'm still kind of a rookie at that piece um you know i've really chosen to never really have this podcast be any type of monetized source i don't really want want that energy here. I just want this to be something interesting that people have the opportunity to listen to. Um, Many times people are curious kind of where I live professionally. Um, You know, we are trying to have this idea of lifesteading at here at Ripple Ranch. I live on a 44-acre ranch outside of Boise, Idaho, and our concept is to have a holistic look at how 
the stewardship of land is held. We see it as a t I'm a temporary holder and that I have this duty because I've been given this gift of this large piece of land. I have these duties that I see myself having to hold. And that is the procurement of my food, shelter, and power production. Um, and I want to be an exemplary property that helps other people to choose kind of autonomy from the system to procure our food, our shelter, and our power. And I want to help people to do that. But as well, an acknowledgement that we also need a very adept physical, mental, and spiritual well-being on the other side of that for that to have a holistic vibration and a duty to give back to the world. So we are building a community and we're building all those other things and, and we hope to help you to, to do that as well. I also am known as the goat guy globally and I help people with goats and you know we have all the stuff with goats and all that fun stuff. So if I can help you with that, that's great. Um, and then I own a, an adventure consulting company where I help to put people on adventure around the world specializing in hunting. Um, I personally see my personal medicine, the thing that I think I have a walk with that I'm not quite clear on someday, which is to help people to have a clearer understanding one of the most beautiful aspects of humanity, which currently our culture has done a very poor job of embracing, which is the death experience. I believe that part of my walk in life is to have this exemplary interaction with the land and with animals and with goats being such a special animal to interact with and, and my love of animals, yet the fact that I take life, I eat animals, um, I, I eat my goats, which are like for other people eating your dog. Um, these are my pets, but I do believe that um, the highest level of respect I can give my goats is the fact that they will um, be able to give their final gift, which is a gift of their flesh. And I think that's super, super natural and beautiful. And so, um, you know, I think that that's part of my walk as well. So, and, you know, that I've been given this gift to attract really beautiful people um, with beautiful thoughts and beautiful ability to put it into words like Julia. So um, that's part of what we're doing here. I hope you find this both helpful and, um, you know, feel free and contact me. I'm, I'm not, again, looking to try to do business on this platform. I'm looking to try to do my work, um, which is to give back to humanity and um, I'm really grateful you took the time to listen. So thanks, Julia. I super appreciate you. You're so kind. Thank you. Thank you. Love you. I love you too. Mm -hmm. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. All right. Bye.